Hello and welcome to The Long View, a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. The Long View is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, so be sure to go and check out all that they have to offer. There is a huge database of reviews for people who are looking to purchase a game. Maybe you want to check and see what others have said about it before you spend your hard-earned money. Go to Dicetower.com, enter in a game that you're interested in, and you will see a complete list of all of the reviews and videos that have to do with that game. So it's a great resource for the board gaming community. Plus, you get to see all of the latest and greatest from Tom and see and Sam and Eric and the rest of the gang. So go check out Dicetower.com. The Longview is also generously sponsored, of course, by Gamesurplus.com. You hear me talk about them every episode because they're just that good. Um, Game Surplus is a fantastic uh, outlet for anybody who's looking to buy a board game online. Uh, they have fantastic pricing and shipping. Uh, their packaging is fantastic. Uh, they are able to get games before anybody else, it seems, uh, even before the, the, the big boys, as they say, like cool stuff and fun again. Um, you'll find games that uh, come into stock at gamesurplus.com before anybody else. So if you know there's a hot new import coming, if you're really anticipating a new release, go and check out Game Surplus first or send them an email at games at gamesurplus.com and tell them what you're looking for. And Carmen and uh, Elaine will be sure to track it down for you and get it to you just as quick as can be. So uh, go find out what that kind of personal shopping experience is like at gamesurplus.com. And if you do decide to order from them, please be sure to tell them The Long View sent you. My name is Jeff Gamble. I'm the host of The Long View. And today I am very pleased to be joined uh, by repeating contributor Matt Clark, uh, who I always thought was Meeple's Matt on Board Game Geek, but apparently it's Minneapolis Matt, although uh, he tells me that he's fine with either. So Matt, Meeple's, Minneapolis, Clark, welcome, and thanks for being on the show again. Awesome. Thanks, Jeff. I'm uh, glad to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, it's always nice to have a returning voice, especially when mine is abandoning me, as everybody can probably hear at this point. So uh, much to everybody's delight, uh, a lot of the talking is going to be done by you today, my friend. So, oh, fantastic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we are here to talk about, uh, in many ways, uh, this is uh, an episode that is probably going to be posted as uh, PAX Pamir uh, because we are originally kind of scheduled to talk about this game. Uh, in the time that I kind of took to kind of organize this, get this together with my schedule, Matt's schedule, um, I had reached out to Cole, uh, the designer of PAX Pamir, uh, and said, oh, you know, I would love to try an infamous traffic. And uh, this is a game that not a lot of people have heard about unless you follow Cole and his games. Um, um, and it is a game that is definitely worthy of discussion. So we're going to talk about that. And then as a little bit of a tease, we are extremely fortunate uh, in our listening audience here, myself included, uh, in this mix to be able to talk with Matt because he is uh, working on kind of playtesting and working with the uh, prototype of John Company, which is the newest title that's going to be coming out from Cole. Uh, and I believe this one's going to be published by Sierra Madre with uh, Phil Eklund, uh, his company. So this is uh, Cole's design that is going to be talking about the British East India Company. So my goodness, lots of great gaming to talk about here. So strap in and let's get ready. Uh, we're going to begin our discussion tonight with Pax Pamir. So um, Cole, uh, one of the things that, that really fascinates me about Cole's games, Matt, is that like Phil Eklund and uh, like Martin Wallace, um, 
he is a designer that is very, very good at putting a game in a particular time and a particular place. So I think about a game such as, um, you know, Pax Renaissance, or I think about a game like, um, uh, of course, Pax Perferiana, or I think of Martin Wallace's Brass. And, you know, these are games that are just the history is just baked right in there. And so not only is it uh, fun to play from a game standpoint, but you also learn a lot. Um, You're inspired to learn more often by playing these games. And so right or wrong, and I I mean no disrespect to uh, uh, Cole Worley in any way. Am I saying that right, by the way, Matt, Cole Worley? Uh, I believe so, yes. Okay. I mean, no uh, disrespect to Cole in any way, but I kind of think of Cole as like a a disciple of Phil. Like, you know what I mean? Like, he kind of, it's like Phil's like the mad master, like the mad genius. And then like Cole is like, you know, his, his like, uh, his Padawan, you know, who is coming out with these games. um, And and the connection is there, I think, not just because of the company connection um, with uh, Pax Pamir, but also the design sort of sensibilities uh, that I think both of them bring to the table. So I'm really looking forward about, uh, to, to, to talking about these games, Matt. So um, before we uh, kind of begin, um, can you tell us a little bit about your history with, um, you know, games like Pax Pamir? Uh, how did you get involved with John Company? And uh, how did you hear about Infamous Traffic? In other words, uh, what's your history with the games and perhaps with Cole himself? Sure, absolutely. So, um, <clears throat> I first heard about PAX Premier um, probably in something as, you know, like a board game geek news announcement or something like whatever uh, Sierra Madre games, whenever they decided to publicize Premier, that would be my first time hearing about it. And I have um, a sort of deep respect for Sierra Madre games and what they do, but I haven't necessarily loved every Sierra Madre game I've ever played. Right, Um, right. But... I remember reading about Pamir and I remember reading something that Cole had written about it, where he said that he was interested in doing a game about the great game in Afghanistan, but rather than do it from the perspective of the sort of colonialist imperialist powers, he wanted to kind of give some voice and autonomy to the people on the ground, right? Like play the, present the game from the perspective of people in Afghanistan. And I thought that was a really sort of compelling um, argument for the game and something that interested me. So that's when I started to follow the game. I had played Porfiriana before and uh, thought it was really uh, a unique and original um, design and experience, even though I guess <laughs> now we know it's a you know derivative from the earlier design, Lords of the Sierra Madre. But uh, um. I was very interested in playing a game like that, but sort of with Cole's sensibility. So that's where I first started looking into Pamir. And then um, I picked it up that fall when it came out. I had a chance to go to BGGCon in 2015 and meet Cole and talk to him a little bit. So that sort of helped everything along. And uh, after I picked up the game, and I learned it and I played it. And uh, as you are maybe familiar with here in Minneapolis, we have the first Minnesota um, Wargaming Club. So we had a lot of enthusiastic and willing players. So that was great. And I got to play it many times thereafter. Well, thanks for giving us that kind of backstory a little bit and uh, letting us know kind of what drew you uh, to the game uh, from, you know, your perspective there. And your story is very similar to mine. 
this was a title that intrigued me because of the historical context. Um, as a, uh, a person living in the United States, Afghanistan um, and that whole region has kind of, of course, arisen on my radar uh, due sure. to some of the uh, you know recent uh, history that uh, we've been going through here in this country, and that of course the people of Afghanistan have been going through as well um, for much longer than than we've kind of been aware. Um, you know, I, I kind of uh, I think my interest in the region was first piqued by uh, a movie called Charlie Wilson's War, um, which oh, yeah. I found to be an extremely powerful, very interesting movie. Um, and and kind of got me asking a lot of questions about the region and um, you know what had happened and what was the history there. And so when Cole um, came out with this design, I was really primed. You know, I was ready. Uh, I was ready to dive into it um, to kind of see the precursor to the situation that is uh, you know still unfolding now um, in, in that part of the world and and kind of see if maybe I could look at some of the roots. Um, through the abstraction of the gameplay uh, to sort of get a feel for, um, as you said, what it's like to kind of be on the ground there, um, to, to live through a period where um, it almost feels like the vultures are circling, you know, um, and, right. and you've got all these people kind of picking at you and pulling at you. And, you know, you're just trying to kind of make it. You're trying to survive. You're trying to keep your your, your own sort of identity and your own, uh, your own culture, your own way of life, um, despite the fact that uh, you're kind of caught in the middle and you're caught in the middle as a uh, much smaller member. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it must felt it must have felt like to them like they were surrounded by giants. Um, and, and, you know, how do you deal with that? And so I thought the game was a way for me to try to explore that and try to get a little bit of a feel for it. So uh, that was kind of what attracted me to it. So uh, this is a game that uh, immediately I was interested in uh, because of the theme, but also because of the relationship um, in name to, you know, Pax Perferiana, which is still one of my favorite games. I, I, it, I just absolutely adore that game. I mean, I, sure. I think I can use a, a word that strong for it. I'd, I've never really played a game like it, um, it was wholly original. I was I was looking at uh, a thread recently on BGG that was uh, somebody asking, like, you know, what really new and original has popped up in board gaming um, in in recent memory? And Pax Perferiana to me was, um, you know, a tableau builder. Yeah, I understand that. Um, you know, card drafting. Yeah, I get that. But the way in which the system works. Um, the way uh, in which everything about that game flows, the idea of attacking yourself for your own long-term benefit, so right. many different things in that game that had just never really been done before. I absolutely was captivated by it. So along comes another PAX game, um, you know, uh, PAX uh, Premier, and I'm like, ooh, you know, I got to check that out. So um, all of those things kind of put together a perfect storm, and I was one of the first people to grab that sucker uh, as soon as I could uh, when that came out. So before we go any further, um, can you maybe, uh, just for people who might not be familiar with PAX Premier, I think we've done a good job of grounding it in uh, the context of, of uh, this sort of, if you want to call it a family of games, but um, can you maybe give people a, a basic idea of just the general flow of play? You know, we don't, I don't expect you to do a full rules explanation. That would be crazy, but uh, just a general flow of play so that people can kind of follow the conversation here. 
Absolutely. So the, you know, the context for Pamir is that the players are represent tribal leaders in Afghanistan in the 19th century during the period that uh, is often referred to as the great game. Um, it's unbelievable to me that there's not a dozen designs about the great game. <laughs> what with the name and everything, but right, right. Uh, th- this is one of the, the, the first standout ones anyway. Um, so the players are tribal leaders, but there are three imperial powers, uh, the, the British, the Russians, and the sort of the crumbling uh, Afghanistan empire that the players will be aligned to throughout the game and loyal to, and but that loyalty can shift and uh, their influence can grow in all three of those potentially. The game is a lot like Perfiriana. It's got a lot of those same bones. So you have a, a market of cards that are available for purchase into the player's hands. And then the players play those cards into a tableau that each player has. Unlike Perfiriana, there's also a map in Pamir. And this can either be represented with um, location cards that come with a base set, or Sierra Madre also offered a, a, an actual physical board that has the location representations. Um, and I think that you could either buy that separately or it came with uh, the deluxe version of Perfiriana. That they it did. did. Yeah, it came with the deluxe version of Perfiriana, and which was another reason for me to buy it. Oh, and might I also add that the PAX Premier box fits beautifully inside the PAX Perfiriana deluxe edition box. You got both of them in one, one, one spot on your shelf. Awesome. Nice. Um, and so, yeah, so the players take turns. They have actions where they're buying cards from the market. They're deploying them into their tableaus. Um, in Pamir, whenever you um, play a card, it also uh, will deploy units into the game. Um, Perfiriana had player cubes, obviously, and you could use those and you know deploy them onto other people's tableaus. But because of the map in Pamir, there's more, more units, more of a game state that's rooted in a geography. So every time you play a card, it's going to deploy units and you grow your tableau and you grow your influence in the different empires. And um, you also increase your uh, capabilities um, to do different actions more than just buying and playing cards. You're able to uh, have uh, sort of bonus actions represented by your tableau that correspond to um, the four sort of different states of the game, uh, military, political, intelligence war and economic boom. That's one of the things that, uh, you know, like Pax Perfiriana makes the game really interesting is because you almost have these four different, um, in, in Perfiriana, it's kind of like governments. Um, and, but I like the way right. you put it, you know, the different states of the game. And I also think with uh, Pax Pamir, one of the most interesting things is uh, the way that the, the sort of difficult geography of the country is handled. Um, in an abstract way, but in a very real way, because the units that you're going to place out are either cubes of your color, which represents mm-hmm. sort of your tribe, your uh, tribal leader's influence um, in different regions of Afghanistan, or you're going to put out these color-coded cylinders. So you have uh, green uh, for sort of native Afghanistan power and leadership. You have uh, red, which represents Great Britain, and then you have blue, which represents uh, Russia. And so when you place these cylinders into different regions on the map, they're going to be different things depending on where you put them. So, 
for example, if I put them into an actual named region on the board, they're going to be there as troops, as military strength, okay? Um, if I put cubes out, that's tribal strength. And if I put those cylinders out in the connections between the named regions, they're roads, um, which kind of represents the infrastructure, right? And the roads leading from place to place. Afghanistan is extremely rugged. Uh, very mountainous, difficult terrain. You really kind of need roads to be able to move efficiently. If you don't, uh, you end up having to move by like, uh, I think what the game calls like baggage train, you know, which you can right. kind of imagine is like, you know, a, a camel or mule train of, you know, trying to go through these treacherous mountain passes and roads, uh, you know, by foot rather than having an actual road. And so one of the things that you can do in the game is build up this road network, which can enable you to move very quickly, very efficiently, or you end up having to sort of pay the locals to help move you and move your things from one region to another. And it becomes harder for you to exercise that military strength that you might have built up in a region. Um, one of the other fascinating parts of the game is when you do take kind of aggressive action, military action. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you can do is you can attack those very roads. So, you know, I kind of picture that as, you know, sabotage of, of some of these roads in these regions where it's like, oh, there's all these British troops sitting over here in, uh, you know, this region. And, uh, you know, I don't want them coming over here. I'm going to, I'm going to blow up this road. Um, so that, you know, it's going to be really difficult for them to get over here. That'll buy me some time and maybe I can beef up my position here. So there's all of these different kinds of, um, little logistical things that he kind of baked into the game that I really appreciate it because in Pax Perferiana, if you want to kind of consider that like the parent game, uh, which, you know, I'm not saying it is, but in my mind it is, um, you don't really have those logistics problems at all. Whereas, um, Cole and his design, not only in the map, but in how you're going to also move kind of your own cubes representing your own intelligence capabilities. Um, there is definitely a spatial aspect to it. Like you have to move those cubes from card to card to card. They have to travel physically to get from one player's tableau to another um, to start doing a little bit of uh, intelligence gathering, a little bit of spying, maybe a convenient assassination, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, all of these kind of little things that are kind of baked in and maybe, you know, spy versus spy, they kill each other, you know? Sure. Um, so it's really kind of um, much more kind of dynamic. And again, um, spatial than Pax Perferiana is by far, at least in my opinion, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, obviously, Perferiana has locations, right? Because you have the uh, Sonora, Chihuahuan, and uh, U.S. territories represented in the cards, but it's very abstract. And you're right. right. I mean, you, you get it. It's it, there's a, a a a spatial rooting in Premier where location really matters, and it's represented like a little more fully in the game. Absolutely. Um, so, when you're playing this game. Um, you really have to consider all of those kind of connections and relationships towards your long-term strategy. Sure. What would you say is kind of the key to being able to determine where the best locations, like where you should invest your time and your money? Because we haven't even gotten to the negotiation aspects of this game yet. Or the money aspects too, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So um, I guess we should just say real, really quickly that uh, for players of Perferiana, 
they'll recognize the topple cards. But for folks who haven't played it, the game's punctuated by these four cards that are seated into the main draw deck, and they're called the topple cards. And they essentially um, allow for either um, a, a game end or, or, or win if you're playing with just the, the base rules as they were published, um, or if you're playing with the uh, either the nation-building rules or playing with the expansion, the Kyber Knives expansion, um, they represent a scoring round, kind of like a, a propaganda card in coin or something like that. Right. Um, and uh, so when those cards are purchased, you're able to look at the game state and decide if one of those three imperial powers is uh, supreme in the regime that's being represented, military, economic, intelligence, um, or political. And then whichever player has the most influence in that empire will either win the game or score points, depending on which version you're playing. Absolutely. And so I guess what I'm trying to ask here is that is there, I've kind of found that spreading yourself out and spreading yourself a little too thin, trying to do too many things at once um, can be very difficult to maintain because you're much easier to pick off. Um, you're much easier to disrupt. Whereas right. if you try to kind of concentrate in certain regions and kind of grow your power and influence, it seems to work a little bit better. So sure. that's kind of where I was driving with this question about like the spatial parts of the game, just so that people really understand that this is completely different than say something like Pax Perferiana. Um, would you agree that, uh, you know, there, there, you need to give some consideration as to where you're playing and adding your pieces and adding the pieces of the Imperial powers that you're hoping to sort of court, if you want to put mm -hmm. it that way. Um, or do you think it is better to have your fingers in a lot of pies? Because I've played the game quite a bit, but I'm sure nowhere near as much as you. So this is as much <laughs> a question for, you know, from me as sure. it is for anybody out there uh, who happens to be listening. So what would you say to that? I would say that the first thing you're going to do is that, I mean, you, Number one, before the game starts, you pick a starting loyalty, and that's going to influence some of your choices. Um, you're also going to look at that market, and you're going to see each card is going to have a location, and you're going to make a decision based on is you know where am I at in the turn order? Where's my loyalty, and what's available there? Right, and uh, so. But I would agree with you when you say that spreading yourself really thin is is not gonna it's not a, not a winning <laughs> strategy. Um, no, no. If you have a political presence in a region with your tribal cubes, well, you're also going to want to have a military presence there um, to protect those tribal cubes because otherwise it becomes easy for an opponent to come in and wipe out your tribes, and that's going to go poorly for you um very poorly yes because you're you're not only going to lose the tribes but you also might end up losing the card right um that's associated with the region that kind of gave you the tribes in the first place so yeah uh, and that can be devastating because of other mechanics which we haven't talked about yet that include things like uh the number of tribal cards if you want to call them that they're like purple colored uh mm -hmm. is is going to be uh very significant in the number of cards that you can have in your display and so if you lose those cards, now you might be forced to discard other cards from your display, which could be very damaging, yes? Absolutely. Um, and the other decision that you get to make 
um, has to do with which of those uh, empires you're going to be loyal to. Mm-hmm. And like you say, being spread out too thin is not a bad idea or, or is a bad idea. And then also um, you can sort of decide if someone else is going to align themselves with Great Britain, for instance, if you align with Great Britain also, there can be some benefit to that. Um, their pieces will protect your pieces. You'll be sheltered with their pieces and your power will grow um, with the two of you working. The trick being that you need to have more British influence than they'd have when it comes time for scoring the game. Uh, Absolutely. Otherwise, you've helped them win, uh, in right. effect. Um, right. So that's a very delicate tightrope to walk. And you're absolutely right. You have to kind of be aware. Uh, and that's where, you know, some of the mechanisms in the game like gifts come in handy. There's there's uh, uh, the opportunity where you basically just get nice things to, you know, the, the powers that be. You give, them, you give them some lovely gifts. And they're like, well, I really like that guy. He really gave me this, this beautiful, <laughs> you know, watch, yeah. whatever it is. <laughs> He's the best. Right. I love this guy. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very interesting that those alliances can both help and hurt you. Um, you know, I, the, the reason that I've been harping on this spatial thing and this, this location thing so much, I'm going to draw a weird analogy here, Matt, Sure. which is uh, to a coin game. Uh, in, in coin games, there is the siren song of the events, okay? Like, you can play a coin game, um, which are the counterinsurgency games that were uh, sort of started by Volko Runke uh, that GMT publishes. And every uh, game centers around this sort of deck of cards. And um, you flip a card over uh, at the start of a round, and you also kind of get to see what's coming next. You flip another card. And the, the opportunity presented by the card is either to sort of give you the ability to do th- stuff on the board using what are called like operation points um, or to take the event. And the events are often really, really juicy. You know, they're like, mm-hmm. they look like they're just going to be game changing. The world will never be the same. And one of the big traps in coin games is if you take cards too often as events, you'll find that you have nothing on the board and therefore you might have triggered all of these amazing events, but you've kind of done nothing to actually advance your own position. And so therefore you're probably going to lose. And what I found with my early plays of Pax Pamir is it's like, Ooh, Ooh, look, it's a three purple card. You know, um, the cards are ranked in value of like one, two, or three, right. uh, if you want to think of it that way. And that basically is going to tell you uh, the number of pieces that you're going to put out onto the board. So a two yellow card is is an economic card, which means you're going to be able to place two roads. A three purple card is going to let you place three tribal cubes in the region that's listed on the card. And so, you know, you draw a card like that. You're like, oh, this is a three purple. This is awesome because if I can get this card, it's going to increase my tableau size by three. And I've got this intelligence card I've been holding in my hand. I really want to use it because that will let me increase my hand size. And so, wow, this is going to be amazing. And so I draft that card and then play it 
when I'm actually, I kind of succumb to the siren song of it, which is, ooh, it's a three purple, but it's, it's going to put my tribal cubes in a region that I really can't defend, that I can't support, and that are going to be wiped out, which then is in the long term going to really hurt me, which I'd kind of alluded to before when you have to discard cards out of your tableau if all of your tribes are wiped out from a specific region. So do you think that's a fair parallel? And then I'll get off this point and, and we'll move on to something <laughs> else, because that's really what I'm trying to figure out here is if I've divined that correctly or not. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, <clears throat> we sort of alluded to that earlier, but yeah, no, that's the perfect example um, something like a three-star political card um, is very tempting. Um, you definitely want that in your hand, <laughs> at least, if you, if you can manage it. Right, right. Um, but deploying it without any sort of thought for how you're going to defend those tribes is, um, is going to be, uh, you know, <laughs> the road to disaster. That, that's, that, that's not a very secure position. Um, having said that, I think that <clears throat> Pamir played thoughtfully gives you a lot of avenues to build in that protection. Um, it is not quite so easy to destroy what someone has put together with a single card play in Premier. So if you, if you're thoughtful about how you deploy those cards, if you make sure that you have something like a military defense in a region before you, you know, play a, a, a tribal political card there, um, you know, it will take the other players will have to work a little bit to uh, dismantle that, which is nice. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I've found that, uh, you know, a lot of times I will take the opportunity to place military anywhere. Like I'll just right. plop them anywhere because then I can move them. Um, so if I know I've just drafted that three purple card that we're referring to, um, I'll move my uh, troops uh, over the course of a turn or two, I'll take some time to move them through a campaign action uh, over to that region before I deploy them. Um, and I've also uh, fainted with that um, and had some uh, delicious success with that. You know, as as my uh, fellow players learn my own sort of tendencies, they're like, oh, you know, why is he going over to that region? Oh, I'll bet you he's, you know, I remember that card he took. All right, I'll bet you he's going to deploy there. And then they send their troops over, and then I end up doing something completely different, an economic kind of a card that they weren't expecting, or, you know, uh, playing an espionage card, uh, taking an espionage action, I'm sorry, by playing a blue card, uh, you know, an intelligence card down to my tableau. So that can be a lot of fun, too. I, I find that there's a lot of mind versus mind in this game. Would you agree uh, that there's a, a good amount of above-the-table interaction in this game yeah absolutely um and also because the game does allow um negotiation it sort of lends itself to discussion of the game state and uh deals between players and uh, those can go you know in your favor or or horribly against you (laughs) depending (laughs) on what's going on um it's very much a timing situation which i find that the more games i play the more that seems to rise to the surface where you know Staking a very early dominant lead in Pax Premier <laughs> will not necessarily go your way as your opponents, uh, you know, uh, collude to your downfall. 
Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, because there there is really no catch-up mechanism in this game. There's nothing artificial. So uh, if you don't rein in somebody who's developed a dominant position, they're going to walk all over you, and the game's going to be over quickly. Um, right. So, yeah, I totally agree with you about that as well. All right, well, thanks for kind of exploring that little avenue of the game there uh, with me. Um, I want to return to something that you just mentioned, though, as a different sort of line of, of thought, which is the negotiation aspect in this game not only is negotiation encouraged it's it's often required in this game and that's because um for you to uh place your uh uh, cubes like your your tribal cubes in a region where somebody else is you actually have to pay you have to pay off the locals basically which in this case would be other players in order to place them and because money is so ridiculously tight in this game, which is another issue we haven't uh, really touched on yet, we've just mentioned it, uh, that can often be very difficult and or impossible. And then that's where you have to kind of negotiate with people because if they don't allow you to come into that region, then you can't do it. So, you know, you, you might have the perfect card for the perfect situation, but if you're short of cash and you can't just outright bribe them basically and say, we're coming in, um, you, you might be totally stymied. And I, I find that to be an amazingly interesting part of the design too, because again, it takes the game and, uh, puts in a form of interaction that was not really part of the Pax Perferiana uh, experience. Now, there's tons of interaction in Pax Perferiana, but not this kind, not negotiation sort of interaction. Um, you know, sure, there can be some table talk over whether my troops are going to protect, quote unquote, your enterprise when I send them over there. You can kind of threaten people with sure. certain actions. You know, I've got this assassination card uh, to assassinate your partner there. Or, I mean, th- there's a little bit of it, but nothing like Pax Pamir, at least in my experience. So can you talk a little bit, Matt, about that whole, because my voice is like going. Can you talk about oh, yeah. that negotiation aspect of the game? Sure. So, um yeah, interestingly, uh, the game is first published allowed for really freewheeling and dealing. Um, you could exchange cards and money um, without taking actions freely around the table. It was it was pretty wild, um, and especially with the game end condition only being a single topple, um, what the players and the designers found is that once once it got out into the world, um, people could negotiate to the point where it became difficult for anybody to win the game because they could negotiate essentially to a standstill. And then the game would just end on like tie breaking conditions after the fourth topple. Right. So some adjustments were made. Now negotiation isn't quite as, as freewheeling, but it's still very potent. So um, you have to expend actions to do things like exchange money or cards. But like you said, um, the cost to deploy a card is going to involve paying to um, the tribes in that region represented on the map, but those prices are negotiable. So you can find yourself in a position where you're saying like, well, I'd like to play this card. I don't have the three rupees to give your tribes people there. Um, Would you give me a deal? And they would be allowed to do that. Or you could say something like, I don't have the money 
you should let me play this card for free or I'm going to move my armies in there and destroy everything. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's a little bit more uh, aggressive yeah, of a stance. Yeah. Right, right. Can cannons talk in, uh, in, in Pax Premier for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's a part of the game that, you know, I find to be very, very enjoyable and also very, very frustrating. I mean, there have been plenty of times when I've, you know, played the game. Uh, and one of the, the prime examples of this is my son, because he can be a real bugger. Like if he knows that he's got me over a barrel, he'll just either extort the living daylights out of me or he'll just refuse just to watch me squirm. You know what I mean? Like he's, he's really good at playing very, you know, what I would say evilly, you know? Sure. Um, and the game really offers you opportunities for that um, to be in that position of, you know, just kind of denying somebody or just plain being a jerk. But you know that sooner or later the wheel comes around, <laughs> and, right? you know, as my son has discovered, you know, uh, things, things happen, you know, um, it's almost, you know, a little bit of a mafia feel like, Oh, I'm so sorry that that happened to, uh, your road there. I guess, uh, you're not going to be able to, uh, win on this topple card here because you got to have at least one road and Oh, look, you don't have a road anymore. Yeah. So remember that time you did this to me? Well, there you go. <laughs> you know? And so there's lots of ways to kind of like get back. And so, as you said, everybody has leverage over each other. And that's one of the things that I like about it. Even if you are in a relatively weak position um, from a board kind of standpoint, from what you see on the map in front of you, you still can wield a lot of influence and control over another player because of the way those rules are written. Um, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that uh, unlike Pax Perferiana, where the money can flow, the money can flow like water, man. It, it's... It's like, boy, if you get a good economic engine going in Pax Perferiana, you're just like, you're, you're like making it rain, you know, like <laughs> you just right. got more money and you know what to do with. Well, in this game, it's a closed economy unless you play certain cards, which are called leverage cards, which kind of bring in outside uh, cash, like loans in, you know, however you want to think of it. But the economy itself is closed. So what that means is if, you know, you start with X number of rupees for each player, that's all the money that's in the game. And so right. there are many times when you are out of money and just entirely like you, I guess you, you know, you won't do things anymore <laughs> because you have no money. And so then you have to try and earn money through taxation actions, or you have to try and uh, earn money by taking cards that you may not even be very interested in, but because there are rupees that have been left on them by other players. Um, as you buy cards in Pax, Prefer uh, in Pax Premier, you basically have to sort of make a trail of money, if you want to think of it that way, mm -hmm. to get to the card that you want. And then a player uh, in a later action can take a commerce action and just swoop those coins up. Uh, or perhaps they'll buy the card, and when they get the card themselves, they get any rupees that are on there. Uh, the only stipulation being you can't drop rupees yourself and then pick them up later. Like, you, you just can't do that. Right. Um, so, I mean, the money is so tight in this game, that's what makes it feel to me as though even though you might be in a weaker state at that moment than somebody else, you can still wield enormous influence because there's nowhere near as much money as there is in, in Pax Perferiana. Would you find that to be accurate? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think the closed economy uh, in Premier, as much as you say, like you say, you're going to have leverage on people. You're going to have knives that can be deployed, <laughs> certainly. 
Um, <laughs> it doesn't feel quite as uh, kind of uh, take that or whack-a-mole as a game of Perfuriana can feel sometimes. Um, but while you have leverage, I think Premier also fosters a lot of sort of emergent alliances. Um, you'll end up sort of, you know, cooperating with folks to to get your uh, get a toehold on on the in the map situation, um, and and then of course you know <laughs> later you may turn around and uh, destroy that alliance. But uh, at the time, always you you find you find, <laughs> and, and it's because of both the money shortage and the action shortage, right? Like you're always like your one card play less than you want to be at always in the game. Uh, it's a, it's, it's a tight game. Um, so interestingly, when I was at a, a BGG con in, uh, 2015, um, are you familiar with a Neue Heimat? Oh the yeah. Yeah. German game about uh, building neighborhoods <laughs> and auctioning. Yeah, off we basically call it the mean game, <laughs> the mean game. Absolutely. It is a super mean game. It looks delightful, but it's very mean. So I was playing Noya Heimat with uh, some friends and Cole was at the table next to me playing, teaching Premier um, for the first time for some people. And he turned around and he's like, I played so much Noya Heimat to figure out some of the money flow interactions in Pax Premier. And I found that just to be sort of mind boggling. And it just goes to show um, sort of what an enthusiast and student of games Cole is, and he brings that um, to a game like Premier. I thought it was just fantastic. Yeah, that's really interesting because there are definitely some parallels there. And uh, I, I wasn't aware that he had uh, played that game, studied that game. That game got such small distribution. Uh, it was so difficult to find. Um, of course, I got mine in game surplus. I'll throw that plug in there real quick. Um, <laughs> never miss an opportunity for that, my friend. Uh, there you go. <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, it, it is. I mean, the, the closed economy there as well. That you know, it's, it's a really interesting way to force, um, tough decisions, you know, um, and, and to put sort of limitations, uh, on things endpoints, um, you know, as far as how, how far can you go, how far ahead can you get, um, from a money standpoint, the game, which can be very important, uh, as you know, buying cards that are much later, on the card display is incredibly expensive. As a matter of fact, it's usually out of the expense, uh, out of the, the, the money range of most players. And God forbid you're in a, what's the one military where the cost of yeah. all the cards in the market is doubled. Um, yep. yeah, I mean, that, that's just crazy. You know, <laughs> those are tight <laughs> times for everybody. That's just yeah. crazy talk right there. <laughs> nobody has that kind of money. So, right. but yeah, I mean, so you can, you can work yourself into this amazing financial position but sooner or later, that money is going to flow out and it's going to flow right back to your opponents. And so I, I really like that uh, ebb and flow of the <laughs> money in games. You see what I did there? I really like Very that nice. in this game and, and in games like Noya Hyman and, and other games that use a closed economy. So uh, that's a really interesting story. So thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah. Cole is, uh, you know, without a doubt, I think a, a great student 
of uh, uh, games. You know, when you read his posts and uh, the things that he, uh, you know, puts on the geek, uh, not just his designer diaries, but other comments and things he makes, you can tell that he's uh, one of those people that's just uh, very thoughtful about uh, not just things like theme and history, but also about uh, how games work. Um, so yeah, I, I, fascinating story. I, I did not know that at all. So very cool. Thanks for sharing that. Um, okay. So we've talked a little bit about a lot, um, is kind of how I feel like you, you could, geez, I mean, there's so many little rules in this game. You know, when you look at things like all of the free actions that you can take, depending on what sort of government card is in play at the time. We've alluded to some of them, like commerce actions when you're in an economic boom, um, taxation actions when uh, you know, you're in the sort of political uh, fragmentation, I think they call it, political fragmentation right. sort of uh, uh, era or regime. It's not really a regime. It's more of like a, a general era or tone of the country at the time. Um, and then there's this whole intelligence part that we haven't really talked about that I find really, really interesting, which is basically this idea of uh, your cubes represent tribes when they're on the map, but mm-hmm. they represent spies when they're on tableau cards. And so you can move these spies about, and I, ref- I referred to it earlier, there is a spatial aspect to it, and you can move them into other players' tableaus where they can sort of squat <laughs> and occupy a sort of a color-coded band on quite a few of these cards that will come into play in players' tableaus that will signify sort of a, um, a tie or an allegiance to, say, Great Britain or Russia or to native Afghan uh, sort of power and control. And so by having your spies there, you're garnering that all-important influence um, that you're going to need in order to try to hopefully win the game or at least keep yourself in the game. And so uh, these spies moving around are gathering sort of intelligence or influence. I picture it thematically as they're getting the dirt on some of these people and and can kind of like, you know, maybe blackmail them or they are ingratiating themselves to, you know, this, this powerful person from England who's visiting um, and, and trying to make some inroads that way, you know? So you kind of see all of this subtle stuff going on behind the scenes as represented by these cubes. And then you can also have these sort of intelligence wars where um, uh, spies are knocking each other off um, and, and eliminating each other. Uh, or there can be outright assassinations. And so uh, talk a little bit about what you feel is the importance of this entire intelligence aspect of the game. Because what I found, and, and I'm curious if you find the same thing uh, too, Matt, from your plays, is early on in my plays of Pax Pamir, it was largely ignored other than, well, I got to get one spy onto a card so I'm eligible to win. And, uh, you know, uh, nobody ever seemed to go for an intelligence victory, an intelligence uh, war topple. Um, it seemed like uh, it was largely ignored by my play group for a while until we really got to know the game and understood how interesting and kind of powerful that whole aspect of the game was. Did you, you know, in other words, we were so focused on the map, on the tribes, on the troops, on the roads, that we kind of like, neglected the intelligence aspect of the game. Did you find that to be true yourself or is that just indicative of my play group? 
No, no, I think I think you're right. Um, I think building a robust military or uh, you know combining military and tribes on the board or building an economic engine on the board makes a lot of obvious sense to players. And I would say that not only did we sort of get into the intelligence game later, I would also say that the longer our game started going, once we got past, you know, sort of one topple and it's over, the games tended to move into a sort of intelligence war, spy versus spy scenario. Um, and also, I would say, I mean, for me personally, uh, that's when the game just sort of comes to life. Like, the intelligence war stuff is pretty cool. There are a lot of intelligence <laughs> actions that you can take, having your agents moving out there. Also, um, uh, spies on cards, like you say, a lot of powerful cards um, are considered uh, patriot cards, right? They're aligned with one of the three empires. And if you play one of those cards into your tableau, it either has to agree with um, the loyalty you've already claimed, or you will switch over to that loyalty and have to discard other cards. So they tend to be very powerful cards, but they also take some commitment on the part of the player to one of the three empires and um, being able to move your spies to those cards. And like you say, it'll be on someone else's tableau and you can pick one of those allegiance bands and it doesn't have to be um, a band that you're currently aligned with, but you still get influence in that other empire. I mean, yeah, I love that stuff. That's great. And, uh, and also, you know, that's where you get into bribery and assassination. Um, Premier does allow victim awarded points um, in a way where if you assassinate a card, then you can bring it into your tableau to like get more influence. So, you know, it'll be something like you assassinate a, uh, uh, say, a British Patriot card, but then the band on the bottom will have like a Russian influence point. So it's sort of thematically you've you've taken out this high level British agent for uh <laughs> for the for the russian the empire Russian. yeah 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 it's, yeah uh it, it is and i agree with you and i'm glad that you have the same experience that we did because i was kind of curious like if we just were suffering from groupthink there a little bit and it's also interesting something else that you said i want to circle back to which is uh absolutely very early on my games of pax pamir ended on like the first topple or maybe the second Definitely. topple absolutely and yep. it takes a while to get to a point where you can avoid that. Um, and that's because the victory conditions are always interesting, but not super difficult until you really know what you're doing. So we haven't really directly stated it yet, so we might as well. But the, the victory conditions in the game, when a topple card comes up, um, let's say you're in the commerce mode then what you have to have is you have to have more roads basically on that map than, you know, everybody else. And you have to have at least one troop, mm -hmm. one tribe and one spy in a foreign tableau. So that makes you eligible to perhaps win the game. This is under the standard rules. Okay. Right. Um, and if you don't have all of those ducks in a row, you can't win. And so this is what kind of leads to, I think, um, early plays to the game of just, well, you know, I'm going to throw a spy out there because I have to have one. And if I don't have one, I can't win. Whereas, you know, later you really start to look at um, trying to win the game, 
in all of the modalities. You know, you can you can try to win a sort of commerce victory or a information war victory, um, you know, a fragmentation victory. There's, you know, all of them are legitimate paths I've found to winning. Um, and so early games, like I said, were very map-centric because everybody kind of knew, all right, well, if I can get more troops on the board um, and have at least one of these, one of these, one of these, I can win. And as long as I have enough money when that topple card comes up, you know, this, this is good. It's only later that I think people understand the value of the spies is not just towards the intelligence war win, because that's, again, you have to have more spies and at least one tribe, one road, one troop. Right. So you always have to have kind of the most in the modality that you're trying to win the game in. Um, but then there's that sort of one of everything else rule. Um, but the interesting thing about the intelligence war, which is why I've started gravitating towards it, is because of what you just said a few minutes ago, which is that idea of gaining influence in all of these other governments that, you know, these, these uh, uh, powers, uh, imperial powers, however you want to think of it, um, that I can't have in my tableau because it would violate the sort of um, faction that I'm publicly supporting. But right. behind the scenes, <laughs> I'm supporting, you know, these others as much. And as a matter of fact, I've got so much support that it's impossible for you to win overtly with a Russian victory because I have too much Russian influence. And so that opens up a whole nother sort of a layer of this game. You know, this is definitely one of those games. that's like an onion, you know, you keep peeling back layers and what seems obvious at first becomes really sort of interesting and deep as you kind of like peel back that layer and look at how things actually work. Um, so let me ask you this. Both of us seem to agree that this is a game that you really got to play to wrap your head around how many plays would you think you need before you really can start to see the full picture in this game? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> um, like you say, you know, yeah, I think the, the, the onion analogy is, is, is apt in this case. Um, you definitely need to play a game or two. Um, I have taught this game on many occasions where we're playing with the standard rules to one topple. And what we'll do is we'll play to the first topple and someone will invariably win because the game state can be very difficult for new players to parse, but they sort of, you know, they, they, they get to see the motions and then we'll just play again immediately. And then that second game will probably go to two or three topples before it ends. Um, you know, alternatively, I would say that if you're playing with the expansion or the nation building rules where um, you uh, topple is a, not a game ending situation, but a scoring opportunity, um, then probably just, you know, a game, one game where you get to see multiple topples come out. You get to see how points are scored. You get to see how the mechanisms of the game come together. Um, you know, that, that person is now, you know, pretty ready to play competitively. However, <laughs> having said all that, I find myself finding new things, exploring new opportunities, um, you know, every time I play. So there's, there's a lot of game to get into there. Yeah, this is one of those, uh, I was reading a geek list the other day, one, one of the sort of ubiquitous geek lists that pops up every once in a while, you know, what are your desert island games, you know, and 
this is one of those games that I would put in that category because of the replay value of it. Um, you know, the, the, the ability to always be having a different experience um, and have things unfold in a different way is, is one of the things that makes the game very compelling and very interesting. Um, so uh, while we're talking about this, um, I would say 90% of my experience is with the standard game. I mean, I'm one of those people, Matt, that if I'm having fun, with the base game or the standard game or whatever it is that you want to call it, I don't start looking until I'm getting bored. You know what I mean? Sure. And this is one of those games where I'm, I'm still not bored with the standard game. So I've only poked around at the nation building. And of course I've looked at the sort of two player rules because my son and I have played this game uh, two player quite a bit and we'll circle back to player count a little bit oh, okay. later, but um, can you tell us a little bit about Kyber Knives? Can you tell us a little bit about the expansion? Because um, I really don't have uh, any play experience with it. I own it. I just, it, you know, again, I haven't even felt the need to crack it open. Um, you know, it kind of reminds me of uh, um, a comment that I made about 51st State, the master set that came out. I know this is going to sound like a weird comparison, but uh, <laughs> 51st State, uh, the master set that Ignacy uh, published last year, I believe it was, um, comes with two expansions uh, built into it. I haven't played with either of them yet. I'm still having fun with the base game. So eventually I'm going to be thrilled that I have them in there. But for right now, my enjoyment hasn't decreased, so I'm continuing to play with just the the, the regular base set cards and and happy as a you know, uh, whatever a pig and uh, slop or whatever. Let's let's try and keep it uh, family friendly. Um, <laughs> so I kind of have had the same experience with Pax Premier. Like I, I haven't felt the need to bust open the expansion yet. So can you tell us about that? Sure, absolutely. So um, yeah. Go get your expansion. Go play it. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, so I I love the leanness of the base game. Um, it's it's really tight. It's it's it's. I, I like that aspect of it very much. But I was just at a uh, local board gaming convention and I taught some people Pamir with Kyber knives from Jump. Like they had never played a single game, and I actually found it really easy to get them on board with it. What the Kyber Knives adds is, first of all, those nation-building rules are a default. So when a topple comes up, it becomes a scoring opportunity instead of a game-ending situation. And the game will either play when one of the empires gets two consecutive topples, or, you know, it'll go to the full, you know, fourth topple. And, and, um, and in this situation, you're the amount of influence you have in the winning empire will score you victory points essentially. Um, which, you know, going back to our intelligence work discussion, um, create some interesting opportunities for spies, right? Because if you have your spies out there on the different empires bands, you're going to be scoring points <laughs> even as they score points, which is, um, a neat, uh, sort of wrinkle to uncover. The other things that it involves is um, what's called the Wazir cards. Mm. And they are cards that, you know, to use like a tax action, um, you have to have sort of uh, local supremacy in a region. You have to have more tribes and um, loyal armies than anybody else in the region. And what the Wazir cards do is essentially sort of flesh that out a little bit. So if you are kind of the 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 most influential player in Kabul at the time, right? You're just going to get 
the Kabul Wazir card, and then everybody knows that you're the boss of Kabul. <laughs> it will give you um, not only does that mean that you can tax players that have Kabul cards, um, but they offer a few more capabilities. Um, some of them allow you to consolidate forces in the region, and some of them allow you to do a regime change if you pay for it, which is a pretty powerful um, option to have in Absolutely. your deck, right? Yeah, that would be huge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other things that it adds are headline cards, which are very similar to um, the uh, Perfuriana headline cards. They're essentially events that can um, cause uh, uh, pretty significant changes. Um, so you either want to buy them to um, turn things in your favor, or you want to buy them to make sure that they don't occur. Um, very much like Perfuriana. And then it has a whole bunch of capability cards. And what they are is you buy them and they don't actually go in your tableau necessarily. They're either some sort of game effect that will trigger when you um, have met the prerequisites for the card to go into effect or an option that I think when we've played it, we all really liked is that you can buy a capability card and it just has like a star in the corner and mm -hmm. rather than keep it for the game effect, you can actually slide it behind an existing card, increasing the rank of that card. Oh, nice. So sometimes in Premier, because of the market and the randomness, um, things just, you're not like, sometimes you don't, you just won't see a purple card for a long time, right? Oh, yeah. Like, oh, my God. You know, I can't get <laughs> tribes out on the board. This is killing me. Well, what these capability cards sort of allow you a little bit more control in that respect, right? So if you're not seeing a lot of good military cards, well, hey, maybe you start with a one-star military card, but then you can beef it up all of a sudden, you know, now you have a two or three-star military presence, even though the deck isn't going that direction. It's still going to take you money and action. So it's not, it's not free by any stretch of the imagination, but it just allows you a little bit of flexibility. Um, I think the expansion really does expand the game in a lot of ways like it just adds um more levers more capabilities um and the uh the headline cards are are um a lot of fun to play with i think um but i especially like i i really like the nation building rules a lot and i think the wazir cards make those tax actions easier to explain to players where you're yeah, just like yeah. you know hey you're the wazir you get to do things like this in kabul you know, go forth. <laughs> exactly. Well, thanks for giving that overview because that's something that uh, I've been kind of curious about. And uh, it does sound like there's some intriguing uh, additions there. Um, and, uh, you know, I I'll definitely crack it open one of these times and give it a shot uh, for sure. Um, you know, right now, uh, you know, like I said, I'm still just enjoying the heck out of uh, sort of the base game. But uh, that does sound interesting, although the events, I'm sure, are quite terrifying. Um, especially... <laughs> Well, you know, in, in a game where money is so tight so much of the time, um, you know, having to invest money and in, in taking that event card so that uh, it doesn't trigger something that's going to be uh, very detrimental to me. That's, it's, ooh, you know, I can see that cutting both ways. Uh, so I think uh, Kyber Knives is, is probably a, a really good name for this expansion. So I appreciate that overview. Um, player count. Let's talk about player count. I said we're sure. going to circle back to that. What do you think about player counts in this game? What is the best? What is the worst? Um, how does it scale? What are your opinions? So here's where I'll admit my lack of experience. Um, 
like I mentioned before, I'm part of a pretty big gaming club. So almost all of my plays have been four or five player. I have played one three player game, I think, Mm -hmm. but yeah, just about everything has been four and five and I love it at four and five. Um, Four would be my preferred player count for a learning game. Five can be a little wacky, (laughs) a little chaotic for a learning game, but uh, I really like it with that. With three, I think it's good. Admittedly, I have limited experience here. Um, The only tricky part is that if you end up in a situation where everybody's sort of, each player is aligned to their own empire and kind of not engaging with each other and that level, um, you know, that just comes down to players, I guess, but that game can feel a little less, um, you, you see a little less of that sort of emergency alliances and, you know, inevitable betrayals, uh, that you see with a four and five player game. Um, but that really does come down to player and player type. Um, if I was playing a three player game, I could see myself, you know, choosing to align with one of the other players, even if I had the option not to. Um, I have not played with two, and I believe there are um, solo rules, right? I think someone I think, developed I think some. there are, yeah. I, I haven't tried it solo uh, in any way, but I have played it quite a bit too. Um, and I've played it four, and I've played it uh, three. Um, I don't know that I've played it five, to be honest with you. Um, I, there was one convention... Uh, that I played it at and I discovered that I was playing a rule completely wrong after like playing the game for two months. It's, you know, one of those kind of games, um, <laughs> which is just, you know, it just totally like rocks your world. Um, I really enjoy it as a two player game. Uh, to me, it's very chess like. Um, and it's, um, uh, I, I don't want to say zero sum because that's almost always interpreted as a bad thing. But in this kind of game, um, I kind of like it because it is very much a move counter move kind of a thing. Right. Uh, it's very tense and the ability, uh, I think it's, it's funny the way you said like, well, in a three player game, each player can ally themselves with one of the three major powers, uh, you know, either a native Afghani or uh, Russia or uh, Britain uh, and kind of do their own thing. Right. Um, whereas in a two player game, what I find really works is, you know, sure, one person kind of pulls one way, one person pulls perhaps another, but the third you fight over. And the third becomes this interesting kind of like um, plan B, you know, where it's like, okay, um, I'm really pushing, uh, you know, I've got, uh, uh, you know, native cards that are Patriot cards. Uh, I'm not going to take any Russian cards, but I'm going to get as much Russian influence as I can because, I do have this card in my hand that I've been holding the whole game, which is a Russian card. And I know full well, if I dis, if I play this card, I'm going to get rid of these two other native Afghan cards and my, my starting loyalty. But in the right circumstance, I might want to actually do that uh, depending on how things are going in the game. So it's almost like a hedge your bets kind of position. Um, so you're actively trying to build up your own. You're actively trying to, as much as possible, uh, equal out influence with your opponents, but then you're also playing around and flirting almost with this third power. And sure. I find that that makes some really interesting dynamics in the game that I was not expecting. I, I, I really wasn't. I was expecting it to stink it too. Um, 
But I myself personally have found that I think it's uh, still quite enjoyable with two. As a matter of fact, I would venture to say I prefer it with two or four and not so much three. Interesting. Um, so I don't know. I'd be curious on the guild um, if anybody else has played it two player uh, as much as I've played it and whether they disagree with me, you know, whether they think, no, 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 you're out of your mind. So, you know, uh, when people are listening to this, uh, I would love to see some comments and, and some players' thoughts about the two player game. Uh, since, Matt, that's not something that you've really uh, had the opportunity to explore because of your amazing, awesome game group. So <laughs> uh, I say to you, <laughs> I give you the raspberry. That's fair. That's fair. That's right. I'll take it. I'll take that it. It's the raspberry of jealousy because, you know, I'll I just go. I'll go complain to my game group. That's right. That's right. Because I've had a, I've had a couple of the first Minnesotans on uh, the show before. Uh, you guys definitely uh, have a great uh, group. And uh, it, it seems like you, um, as a group, explore a lot of different types of games and genres of games, which is really uh, fun and, and kind of refreshing to see. It's not just uh, a bunch of grognards uh, sitting around being grumpy. Um, and it's not a bunch of, uh, ooh, look at the new shiny thing, uh, you know, cult of the new players. You guys seem to have a very nice balance in that group. So, um, uh, you know, kudos to you. It takes a long time to build a good gaming group. Uh, I've got a, a nice core group here of people that I play with and are great people and fun to hang out with, but my gosh, it's taken, you know, years to develop that. So, um, you know, just as an aside, how long has this group of yours been around? Let's, let's dig into that. Cause people are always interested, I think, in how to start a good game group or how to maintain a good game group or where to find one. So what can you tell us a little bit about, uh, your game group? Oh, sure. Well, um, yeah, unfortunately, I'm not going to give you a lot of insight on how to start a good game group because I just showed up to this one. <laughs> the first Minnesota Historical Wargaming Society, quite a handle, I realize, um, has been around in one form or another since 1982. Oh, nice. Yeah, so um, as far as I know, it really was um, primarily a wargaming group for many years. Um, I started attending in... 2014 i want to say essentially looking i had heard about these crazy games called coin games oh yeah (laughs) and i was looking for a group that might indoctrinate me into uh something like that and i was able to uh, reach out to the group they have a guild on board game geek and a lot of really active um, members there so i was able to reach out and uh set up a game and start showing up and i've been coming ever since um, the group has only gotten larger since I started going and, um, we're fortunate. Uh, like you say, we have, um, a lot of motivated members who are enthusiastic about games and, um, learning and teaching them. Um, we have a great location, um, the source comics and games. Um, they let us, you know, essentially kind of take over <laughs> in their gaming area <laughs> on Friday nights. It's us and the magic players kind of, you know filling that room every Friday night. And Um, and can you cohabitate? Because boy, I had some challenges uh, in my local game store cohabitating with some of the magic players. Uh, But I think that might've been because my group that we had at the game store for a while there uh, had a lot more kids. And so it was really difficult because the, I don't want to, I'm not indicting all magic players. Please do not send me a bunch of hateful email telling me how wrong I am about magic. But this particular set of magic players, 
the language, the, um, the, the, the attitude, the volume, crazy bad. Like it was just really difficult to deal with. And, uh, uh it, you know, so, uh, yeah, that, that was kind of my experience. So as soon as you said that, I'm like, Ooh, I, I, how did it work out for you guys? You guys, uh, cohabitating nicely together? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they, uh, it's a big space, which helps a lot. Um, but yeah, I don't think, uh, any, I mean, tables can be, uh, a premium and, uh, they definitely, um, get to have their reserved tables because, you know, these are, um, organized play events that people are, um, paying money for and they're doing Absolutely, um, yeah. a great job. You know, I mean, these are the guys that help keep the lights on in all these game stores, um, Absolutely they all do. over yeah. the place. Yep. So, uh, yeah, no problems as far as, uh, as far as I'm concerned, there's not a lot of, uh, cross pollination, <laughs> which, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe, uh, maybe that's something we can work on in the future. But, uh, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, um, we can have, I mean, on a given Friday night, we'll have Friday night magic going along one side. We'll have the first Minnesota crew doing, um, whatever they're getting into that week. There'll be uh, dungeons and dragons going on in the, um, you know, in another table, it's a, it's a great atmosphere and, uh, worth, worth checking out. If anybody's in the area, come on down to the, the source on a Friday night. Fantastic. And what city is that in again? It's in, uh, officially it's in Roseville, Minnesota. It's just outside of St. Paul. So. Excellent. All right. Well, kudos to uh, the game store uh, for providing that opportunity and a, and a, a safe and fun place for everybody to get together and game. That's uh, truly an asset. Seems like so many of these groups either uh, have a uh, relationship with the game store or comic store, um, you know, or some, uh, you know, kind uh, like that or libraries, you know, libraries are, are uh, big, uh, where a lot of people will uh, gather. And, uh, you know, we're starting to see some more of those game cafes pop up, which is kind of fun as well. So thanks for giving us uh, a little bit of uh, insight there into your group, because it's certainly an active group on BGG. And I, I thought they deserved a little bit of a shout out there as well. So cool. uh, thanks for that update. All right. Um, Oh, man, uh, there's so much more that I want to talk about is the problem. So, um, you know, we kind of have a real life decision to make here. Um, you know, we've been on for what about, uh, uh, over an hour already talking about PAX Swimmer, And I, I think there's probably more that we could talk about. And yet we've also got, uh, an infamous traffic that is, uh, another just absolutely fascinating game to talk about. Um, and then, uh, maybe a little bit of info about John company. So, um, you know, Matt, before I draw Pax Pamir to some sort of a, a close, um, as clumsy as it may be, and maybe start to try about infamous traffic and, and talk about that a little bit, is there anything that you still wanted to kind of cover regarding Pax Pamir? Because we could always uh, subdivide this into two episodes if we needed to. Um, you know, so if there is more, I do not want to rob you of your opportunity to uh, talk a little bit more about Pax Pamir, just because we want to talk about some of these other fascinating games that Cole has put out. So, um, you know, I've talked a lot about the things that drew me to the game, the economy, the uh, different modalities of play, uh, the theme, the time and space, um, the, the uh, interaction between the players, the interactivity, all of those things I love. What about you? Um, well, yeah, I think we can, we, we, we can wrap up Premier. I would just say that, um, you know, of course anybody interested should try it, but I would also say is that, um, if you're 
one of those people where you played uh, Perfiriana and maybe some of the, the chaotic nature of it, um, while I feel it can be overstated sometimes, um, if that left you cold, you should really give uh, Pamir a shot. I think it really turns the focus onto um, both the sort of like, I mean, legitimately, it feels like a economic portfolio building game in some ways. And I think you see those sort of emergent uh, and dissoluting uh, player alliances like you might see in something even like a winsome railroad game. Um, so if any of that appeals to people, they should uh, really check it out. And I also think it's a little, it's easier to learn and teach than some other Sierra Madre titles. I really, I really do think that. So, yeah. Well, thanks for that, uh, you know, the, those last little tips there. And I would agree with you. I, I think it's a, a little bit easier to learn mechanically than Pax Pamiriana. Um, I think that to play Pax Pamir well is a little more difficult than Pax Pamiriana. Um, but they are two completely different games. And, and I agree with you. I think that because of the similarity in name, I think people have lumped them together. Um, and I'm just as guilty of that as anybody else, but I, I wholeheartedly agree and, and would second what she said there. They are two different animals. And so, you know, if one of them wasn't quite your cup of tea, don't immediately discount the other. Right. Uh, and that also goes for Pax Renaissance, um, which is completely different from Pax Perferiana. So, right. um, very, very, very different games. All right. So uh, thanks for um, going down that path with me um, on uh, Pax Pamir over the mountains and through the valleys and uh, the dark woods. Uh, you know, <laughs> it was uh, a very interesting game. I love this game. Um, and so this is what prompted me uh, to ask Cole, like, hey, you know, I kind of missed the boat on this infamous traffic thing. I, I you know, I, I just didn't really uh, see much. I, I uh, was kind of, I'd gone dark a little bit there for a while. I had some things things going on that kind of prevented me from spending as much time on BGG as I usually do. And Cole was gracious enough to say, yeah, you know, I think I have a, a you know, a kit that uh, is still around and uh, I'll send it to you. And lo and behold, it shows up and uh, I'm looking at it and, you know, it's got the paper map and I'm like, Ugh, I hate paper maps. If I'm a board game snob about one thing, Matt, it's paper maps. Like I, it's just, I, it's like, I just, I just turned my nose off at it. And I know it makes me a terrible person. I understand that, but I don't care. As uh, Popeye said, I am what I am. Um, and, and that's kind of the way I look at things, but Oh my gosh, man. I put that uh, thing under a piece of plexiglass and had it matched up perfectly. Thank you very much. So that it didn't disturb me anymore and uh, started to play the game. Holy moly. I haven't been, that sort of uh, shocked by a game in quite some time. And what I mean by shocked is not necessarily the theme, which is what I think most people would think I would be shocked with, uh, but just shocked by uh, the gameplay. It was just, it was crazy. It's mm -hmm. crazy mean. It's crazy interesting. It's fast. It's, uh, 
it's it's funny it's it's like it's got all right. this stuff going for it and i don't know how else to describe it and yet when you try to tell people about it yeah man it's this game and you're like opening up trade routes in china um but kind of like it's it's like feeding opium like from india into china and you're like trying to like get a foothold in there and then like expand and so yeah, it's kind of like the drug trade so that you can make a lot of cash and then go home and like buy your way into english society and people look at you like what (laughs) yep this this is a game you're you're playing a game where you're a horrible person yes yes Yes. i am (laughs) (laughs) and and you know what at the end of all this i'm gonna get myself a good hat and a good marriage and i'm gonna win (laughs) it's like people look at you like you're insane uh, but when you play it, it's truly unique. So I, I'm I'm trying to kind of set the stage in, in in how unexpected this game was for me. Uh, what about you? How did you kind of uh, uh, get on board or hear about uh, this this uh, other game here from Cole? Sure. So um, after um, not just um, Tamir and like getting a chance to meet Cole, but you know I I just. You know, I, I geek buddied him on Board Game Geek and just sort of followed wherever <laughs> wherever he may have popped up. I was trying to 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 get a bead on it, and I think that's where I first started seeing notes from an infamous traffic and um, first hearing about the publisher, which is a new publisher, Hollenspiel Games, um, which is uh, Tom and Mary Russell. I believe yeah, it's like print on demand, right? Yeah. Yep. They're print on demand. And Tom Russell, I knew because he designed uh, Northern Pacific for Winsome Games, which is um, an incredibly weird and lean and wonderful game, um, which is how those are the kinds of adjectives I would also apply to an infamous traffic. Um, it is a um, it's 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 a lean design. It is, uh, I know um, words like opaque get thrown around a lot, but I mean, for the first time player, I think. It is really difficult to thread the needle on what an action in one turn is going to have an effect on, you know, three turns down the road. Um, and and it, it tempts you to um, sort of uh, follow these kind of uh, Euro game engine building instincts that we've all developed over the years. But it's not that game. It is <laughs> it is a different game. Um, it is more about um, risk management, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and timing again, I know I'm going to keep on saying that, but, uh, it really is, uh, you need to see your opportunities when they're there know, know that they will not remain forever, <laughs> that your revenue streams will deteriorate at some point and you need to cash out and you need to get that fancy hat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Never underestimate the power of a hat. In yeah. And if society. you, yeah, if you can't, if you can't get those prizes, if you can't, um, if you can't go it at that route, then it's important to turn the game around. You have to overturn the apple cart because the other uh, winning condition is that if you um, deplete the game is based on dice and dice rolling. If you deplete that dice pool completely, um, China goes into revolution and then whoever has the most pieces on the board is the winner. There's an alternate winning condition. So uh, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's really compelling. I've had a lot of fun playing and teaching it to people and uh People either sort of say, you know, they'll come away with sort of our reaction of like, oh, wow, that's really cool. And I haven't played anything quite like that before. Or they'll say, ah, (laughs) this game is mean and punishing and maybe not for me. So um, and that's fine. (laughs) 
Matt, I'm going to uh, put a little silence in there as an edit point. Can you pull your headset microphone? I'm getting pops. Oh, okay. Like, so like pull it away like from me. Yeah, like you're bumping into it or something's happening or uh, maybe just a little too close to the mouth. Uh, the, the tone sounds great. Um, but recently there's been some pops where it kind of sounds like the microphone's getting tapped or something. Sure. Um, you know, it's just a, a plastic bar, so I'll try and it, maybe it was just coming closer to my face after being in use for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that sounds better. Okay, cool. All right. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, I no just problem. didn't want to have, uh, you know, uh, the, the good things you were saying, uh, uh, being cluttered by the pops, uh, as it were. So, all right. Uh, going to pick it up from where you left off. So here we go. Yeah, it is definitely a game that is difficult to describe, and it's almost one of those things that you have to experience, I think, to decide whether or not it is uh, something for you or not. But I would say it's unique. I would say its use of dice is truly interesting. I mean, dice games are kind of all the rage right now, I, I, you know, at least from a Euro game standpoint. Um, you know, it's funny how dice have gone from being, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, the, the forbidden thing in Euro games to now every game seems to use dice and dice manipulation in, in some way or form. Um, and this game uses them in an extremely interesting way. So um, I want to delve into that mechanic a little bit. So there is a uh, pool of dice that is literally a pool at the top of the board. Um, and again, Kudos to Cole for his graphic design. My goodness. I, I think if the guy wasn't a game designer, I wonder what his day job is because he might be a graphic designer because his, his stuff is so clean. It's very clear. It's very Wallacey in that, you know, there's, there's not a table that, you know, he doesn't like, but very visually attractive flows very well great use of sort of archival sort of historical images in his games love his graphic design okay let's leave that alone so there's literally a dice pool at the top okay and one of the things that happens is when you um you have opportunities to uh place some uh, pieces um, through what are called these conspiracy circles at the top of the board. And they could be uh, something like missionaries. They could be um, uh, police forces that you can kind of mess with other people with. Um, uh, you know, all of these, uh, like, ar- almost like, uh, uh, they're like army pieces um, that you can place in, uh, merchant pieces, all of these different things that you can place in these different regions in China. And some of these pieces are going to allow you to take a die from the die pool and roll it. And when you roll that die, it goes into that region. The pip value on the die is going to indicate whether or not that region is open for the players to kind of go into. So one of the things that you're going to do a lot and early in this game is you're going to place those missionaries, right? Which is really sad to say that the missionaries are kind of helping to start the drug trafficking, but it's kind of the way it worked. Unfortunately, apparently I didn't know. I kind of have been educating myself since then. So um, you'll place a missionary and you'll roll a die. And let's say the pip value is a four. Now, if there are no fours in the dice pool at the top of the board, that region is still kind of closed. Like you can't get in there. 
You can't do anything there. But if there's at least one four in that dice pool, that region is now kind of open and players can begin to place their own sort of enterprises as represented by merchants and shipping. And they can start to build what are called supply chains. So if I bring some ships, I bring some opium, I bring some merchants, uh, I'm going to be able to build a supply chain, which is going to generate income for me. Um, that is going to allow me to purchase more ships and it's going to allow me to send my scion, you know, my, my uh, uh, young, uh, my, my son off to London society to introduce himself and give him the money that he's going to need to get in there and try to like open up these closed doors of uh, traditional English society with new money, you know, like in here in the United States, they called it the nouveau riche, you know, but um, in uh, England, uh, in English society at this time in history, the mercantile class was kind of buying its way into aristocracy, if you will. Um, And so, you know, there's all of these opportunities I'm going to have from these supply chains, which are basically flowing drugs into the country um, and opening up these regions, right? But um, an opponent can come in and undercut me. They can say, well, we'll do the shipping, but we'll do it for half the price. Because when you place your counter, you kind of rotate it to indicate the value that it's going to have in that supply chain. So if I put in a ship at a two, Okay, I'm going to get more revenue when that supply chain's complete, which is going to allow me to uh, take more actions, like build more infrastructure and ships and whatnot. Um, but at the same time, now you might turn around and say, "Oh, you know what? I'll do the shipping in that region. I'll do it for a, I'll do it for a dollar." And so you'll come in and you'll undercut me, or you'll just supplant my supply of opium. You'll do it on the cheap. Um, or you'll send in uh, a police action to break up my supply chain, which now immediately makes me lose all of the income that I previously had had. And now I'm like decimated. I have like nothing. And I'm going to have to try to build myself back up or open another region. Um, so the interactivity in this game is insane. Uh, you add to that another level of interactivity, which is when you go to take a die from a dice pool to perhaps open up or try to open up a new region. What if I take the four? There was only one four up in the dice pool to begin with, which is what was allowing you to place all of these wonderful tokens and build up this uh, uh, infrastructure for uh, your economy. But I take the four. And I roll it and I put that uh, in a new region and there's no fours left in the dice pool. Well, now you're kind of stuck. It's like the local situation has gotten murky and now you can't really do anything there until you get a die roll that matches again. So I found that to be incredibly novel and a really, really interesting way to slowly unfold the game board and expand the game board and yet give the players some agency and control in all that randomness and give them opportunities to either exploit that die pool or use the die pool to really hamper an opponent. Um, So that was one of the things that really struck me about this game. Do you have any comments uh, about that as well? I know I've been talking a while about it uh, and my voice is not exactly at its best, but I'm really passionate about this part of the design. It, It just blew me away. What would you say? No, no. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, I'm enjoying it. I share your enthusiasm. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, to look at it, 
the idea seems to be obvious, like, yes, complete those supply chains. You're not going to be able to do it on your own, probably. Um, making a dollar is better than making no dollars. So uh, undercutting people is going to sort of run rampant. And there are some controls for that. But while some of the people may be trying to do their best to create sort of a thriving opium trade, if you're not in on that, if you're not reaping the benefits of that, it sort of behooves the other player to play sort of destructively as possible, uh, ruining those opportunities for other people. Um, and then, like I say, there's that other sort of timing aspect of like, if you can manage to get some revenue put together, that's going to give you plenty of money to send your your scion, your offspring back to London to cash in on prizes, which are sort of the main victory points for the game. Um, so you can work it out. So where you take your opportunity now, because otherwise you may be undercut later and not have that revenue stream to uh, beef it up. Um, interestingly, I think the game rewards strategic thinking, right? Long-term planning. You have to have um, sort of an idea of what you want to get done in there, but you're also confronted with the randomness of the die rolls and the randomness of which conspiracy tokens show up and when um, maybe the conspiracy tokens will go in such a way that will allow you to get a bunch of uh, British influence and drive the game into opium war between the turns. But if they don't show up, then that's never going to happen. Um, so there's a lot of the risk of doing business during this uh, time period is really reflected throughout the design. And it, it makes it sort of a specific design, right? Not everybody's going to be the audience for this. Uh, if you have a group that's going to be okay with, you know, strategic thinking and a game that will punish you, but also be sort of chaotic in parts, uh, well, they're going to love it, but uh, you can see where it's not always going to be for everybody. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's a, yeah, it's a terrific game. You know, the other thing that strikes me about it is, uh, and and I would echo what you said there before I go on, um, is you got to have a thick skin to play this game. If I had played this game when I first got back into gaming, I would not have liked it because right. I was too thin-skinned. Um, you know, it, it, it would have bothered me. I would have felt like people were ganging up on me. I would have felt like, um, you know, people were slapping me around just to slap me around, and that's mean. And, uh, you know, and there are players out there that um let me uh, let me give you a perfect example um the game terraforming mars uh which is a game that i'm i'm very uh, happy with and happy about it's just a, a great game uh that the the uh, frixelius brothers have designed um it has probably maybe five percent maybe 10% of the cards in this game, which is primarily a card-driven game, it's, it's a huge deck of cards, are cards which you would call take that, you know, cards sure. that are going to directly smack another player. And I have played with players where that's too much. There have been threads on BGG for Terraforming Mars about people who are proposing variants where this ridiculously, in my opinion, small a number of cards that are somewhat aggressive okay have to be taken out of the game in order for you to play it those are not the people for this game like if, if you if you object to that kind of concept at all i don't know that this is a game that you're going to enjoy but if you are willing to uh, bury yourself in that time and place if you are willing to um, explore um, the the very novel game systems that are presented here, all of which kind of, uh, to my mind, simulate 
the sort of uncertainty and chaos of a relatively unknown, unopened country by a larger exploitative sort of imperial power uh, dealing with uh, transoceanic distances. And uh, if you're willing to, to dive into that, you're going to absolutely adore this game. Um, because of the way everything works together, I would argue very thematically. Would, would you, th- before I go on to the point I was originally trying to make before I started talking, would you call this a thematic game? Um, I mean, yes, right? Like in the way that this game, um, the mechanics of this game are meant to present a time and a place to you. I think that theme comes through. And I think, at least in an abstract way, the decisions you make are supposed to really simulate the decisions that some of these, you know, these uh, entrepreneurs. Shall <laughs> we'll we call them? them. Yes. We'll call them. Uh, <laughs> we're faced with where. Um, scoundrels. How about scoundrels? Yeah, scoundrel <laughs> would be pretty accurate, I think. Um, you. There is risk and you will have to manage it in this game. And it just might not go your way. It might not be your day that day. Um, you could lose just because things just didn't pan out the way you hoped. And um, you're going to, if if that's unacceptable to you, <laughs> then this is not the game for you. But if you're okay with, you know, I'm going to uh, play my best and uh, I will navigate the game situation as best I can, then I think there's a lot to mine as far as um uh tactics um but yeah sorry i I, now i'm rambling a little bit but uh no no that's fine hey this is a show to ramble my friend that's that's exactly what this show is for (laughs) all right um so here here's the the other thing that i wanted to kind of highlight about the game and this to me is the ultimate answer for a game of this weight with this kind of randomness it's the playtime the playtime is so short. It, it, you know, I've played this game and had it last 35 minutes. Sure. I've played it and had it last an hour. Um, I haven't yet really gotten to, now I haven't played with a full five player count. I, I haven't gotten to a game that lasted 90 minutes. Um, maybe that's the people that I'm playing with. Maybe they're not as AP um, as other people might be, but this game is is quick. It's really fast. And so to me, this is a game that, as you said, hey, uh, nothing went my way this game, but I had fun. Let's do that again. And, and you can play it again. It, it's ridiculously easy to set up. It's very, um, it flows very, very naturally once you start playing it. And so to me, you know, whenever I, when I worry, Matt, about games that have the kind of uh, uh, variability or randomness that you're talking about is when you're talking a three-hour game with that kind of randomness. If I'm talking about a game that's 45 minutes to an hour, hour and a half, I have no problem with it, especially if the randomness is in service to the overall story that the game is trying to, that the game is trying to sell. And this game is selling a story of people of questionable motives, trying to make a knot of money in order to advance their own family's position. Um, you know, 2000, however many miles away, 3000 miles right. away that, you know, right. so to me, in, when you look at this period in history, when you start to, to scratch the surface as, as I've started to, because of this game, which is another uh, virtue of it. Um, there were so many families that failed. They failed miserably. They tried it and they didn't make it. 
they they suffered misfortune. They were blocked out. They were cut out. They were killed. Like all sorts of things happened. And <laughs> that's part of the game. You know what I mean? So right. I really kind of enjoy that. Um, you know, it, it, it just, it tells that story. It's got that narrative arc to it. So, all right. These are all the positives. I'm going to present you with the one negative. I want to hear what you have to say. This is sure. my least favorite part of the game. All right. I just recorded and released today as of the date of this recording. Um, I'm recording this uh, on what? What is the date here? It is the 26th. Okay. 26. So, yep. all right. I recorded an episode a couple of weeks ago with uh, Alex uh, Singh uh, about Archipelago. And one, uh, it's a, a very interesting Euro game, one that I don't have in my collection anymore. And one of the, the things that I had difficulty with in that game was it was so incredibly low scoring. And it seemed like um, one little point, one little misstep is is going to lose you the game. And my one gripe about an infamous traffic is that there are these prize chits, okay? And the prize chits are going to be worth uh, points. I think the max is, um, might be two, uh, maybe it's three, but I think it's two. Um, and oh, then it's three is the max. It's yeah. three, okay. Yep. And then they also can be negative. You can end up in a bad marriage, it says, minus one right. point. Okay, so the end game score, after all is said and done, might be like six to five to three. Like it can be ridiculously low scoring. It can be really, sure. really low scoring. And that I think um, for me, especially the negative victory points. Now, there are some mechanisms in the game that allow you to peek at these chits. Um, Uh, at the start of every round to kind of pick one of them that you can kind of peek at. So you have some idea of what's out there uh, because when you uh, uh, send your scion off to London is going to be important in the order in which these chits are going to get picked. Okay. Right. But there is um, the randomness that I find so thematic and accessible in the dice pool and in the dice rolling, I find a little troubling with these chits because I've played a good game and lost because of bad chit pulls. Like the ones that I looked at were not very good. So I picked the other one and it was worse. Like that's the kind of thing that can kind of bother me. And and I'll admit that that bothers me. Um, And that was about the only thing about the design that didn't sit quite right with me, but there was enough over and above that I loved that I'm still fine with the game, but it was something that it was a red flag to me and I thought might be a red flag to others. So I wanted to discuss it. What are your thoughts about the chits? Sure. So yeah, like you say, um, there's going to be, you know, two or three prizes available a turn and you get every player gets the opportunity to peek at one of them, which in itself is sort of an interesting decision, right? Like, do I look at the, piece that you looked at or do i look at a new one like are we going to have the same information or different information um and then yeah as you pass you have the opportunity to send someone home to collect on one of these and yeah you don't necessarily know which one you're going to get um that can involve um a little um bluffing maybe or a little uh, trying to read your opponents, right? Because if someone passes and they say, yeah, no way I'm going there, um, then you need to know that you either need to have first or second pick, or, or it's also not a great idea to send somebody there. Um, 
because then you could end up with one of those negative chits. And taking negative points is really going to affect your ability to win the game on points. If you take one, then it probably starts to be that situation where you need to um, cause a revolution as best as you're as, as best as you can uh, and, and win the game that way. Um, I can see it being frustrating for people thematically. I get it. Um, I'm okay with it, but I could definitely see why it would turn some people off. Yeah. And that's a good point. I appreciate you clarifying that because I didn't, I didn't mention the fact that you don't have to take a chit, right? You know, you can, you can not take a chit. Um, and you know, the, the, the revolution victory is an alternate path and it's one that can be surprisingly easy to push the table towards, um, especially the longer the game goes, that dice pool really becomes diminished. Um, and so that's something that you can work towards as well. And God knows I love me games with, uh, you know, alternate victory conditions. I mean, that, right. that's just, that's just fun. You know, um, that's always kind of a, a neat way to do things. So, um, thanks for clarifying that. Um, it, it is something that bothers me a little bit. If that was, if I had a complaint other than the paper map, uh, this would be <laughs> this would be my much more serious complaint other than the paper map. So my wife's like, well, just mount it on some cardboard and stop whining about it. And I'm like, uh, and I mean, you know, <laughs> so I don't know. That's just me. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's a really, really unique design. I highly, highly recommend that people check it out. And uh, it's one it's a design map that I'm really hoping is going to see wider distribution at some point. I, I'm I'm really hoping that. Uh, you know, it's going to get picked up. And and I don't mean that as a a disrespect to, uh, what is it? Holland spiel. Uh, they have published it. Um, but as we all know, you know, a game can be published by Eggert spiel in Germany and then stronghold will pick it up, you know, and that's kind of what I'm talking about, you know, just having it get picked up for larger distribution, uh, I think would be uh, pretty nifty because I think it's a very, very innovative, uh, design and one that's uh, worthy of some attention. So speaking of innovative designs, um, I want to kind of give the last, um, maybe uh, five, 10 minutes of the show here. We're, we're coming up on two hours, which is fantastic uh, to me, but maybe not to others. Um, but that's okay. Cause it's my show and uh, I don't really care all that much. There you um, go. <laughs> not getting paid, you know, um, it's, it's, it's all good. I'm doing it because it's fun and because I get to talk to people like you and uh, get to help people uh, find some really amazing older games and newer games. So uh, it's all good. Um, can you maybe talk to us a little bit about, you have some experience with John, company is my understanding which is cole's new game that's coming out and uh one of the members of uh, your group i believe uh, first minnesota um uh, gordon had published uh, a little sort of geek list where he had put together his copy i guess like a print and play version uh, right. for play testing my god the game i mean i was like almost i was almost salivating over it like i was just like everything i looked at i'm like ooh, what's that Ooh, what's this? Ooh, oh, that looks cool. And I'm like, ooh, what's that? Oh, look at this. Oh, no, I want that. So I'm really, I'm really freaked out by this game. Uh, I'm freaked out by the theme, uh, which is the East India Company. Ooh, you know, I'm freaked right. out by uh, these sort of uh, almost like semi-cooperative but not cooperative nature of it. Um, everything about this game has me geeked out uh, in the extreme. So what can you tell people out there uh, who have done more than just look at pretty pictures like I have? Sure. So um, now, and obviously I've only just, just gotten my own print and play copy myself and played um, two games of the early company scenario. But what I can say is that um, this is a, um, a big 
idea. This is a big game. Um, it is, um, I know people throw around the term sandbox, but I think this legitimately earns it, um, where the players comprise, um, they're, they're all representing uh, affluent British families, and they send their player pieces, their family members, um, into the game to um, become employees of the East India Company. And collectively, they do the business of the East India Company um, trading in India, um, sometimes um, campaigning in India and taking over regions and essentially are trying to uh, earn uh, money for the company, earn promotions for themselves. And then the the scoring mechanism um, will sound familiar now. Um, the player cubes um, have to face attrition where they essentially get booted from their position. But that's a good thing because if you have enough family money, you can convert those players into uh, prizes back home, right? So you go out and try and make your fortune with the East India Company um, and then when your time is over, uh, perhaps you um, manage to get enough um, economic influence to uh, build a, uh, you know, a manor or um, become the ambassador to France <laughs> <laughs> or perhaps join the House of Commons. Uh, and those are going to be the end game points. Um, it allows for very open negotiation. Um Players can freely exchange money and become indebted to each other. There's a, uh, a sort of mechanism where you uh, give someone one of your family member <laughs> cubes and they hold it. Nice. Like either. a hostage. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and that either needs to be redeemed with money or um, if you show uh, preference to them in promoting one of their cubes to a you know, position of distinction in the company, um, the debt can be forgiven that way. Um, Interestingly, the game allows for the East India Company to lose its monopoly and actually fall apart. And the game provides players um, a route to form their own firms with their own money and their own um, holdings. So then at that point, the players can, <laughs> you know, invest in ships and uh, say, you know, someone like gives me a certain amount of money to help start my own little firm, but in exchange for 30% of that firm's uh, profits throughout the game. Um, so there's a whole other part of the game that uh, I haven't explored much yet, but as, as you can see, it's a, it's a big idea. It sounds absolutely fascinating, and uh, you have done nothing to dampen my enthusiasm, sir. So, uh, if anything, you have only increased it. So, um, once again, uh, money lost out of my pocket is uh, <laughs> solely your fault. So, uh, yours and Gordon's. Um, so, yeah, um, it looks like a fascinating game, and uh, the the fact that you know, once again, we have um, economic, uh, geopolitical and social um, kinds of goals and systems being modeled in a game that is, um, you know, going to be, again, uh, largely card-driven um, and in a, in a game system that's going to be this year. I, I just, it sounds so unique, and it sounds very um, thematic, 
uh, a lot of depth to explore there. So I'm really, really looking forward to, to checking this one out. So uh, I would encourage you guys to, uh, you know, as long as Cole's okay with it, you know, maybe post some session reports and stuff, you know, kind of build a little more buzz and give more of us a little bit of a peek behind the curtain because, um, as you said, it sounds like it is a big idea um, and a big idea leading to a gigantic game um, right. that, you know, um, sounds like, you know, it's, it's, um, it was like a masterpiece level kind of game. I hate to level that before I've even played it, but the scope of the game um, kind of leads you to believe that this is like a, a masterwork kind of a thing, potentially. Um, you know, if the gameplay all works out and uh, things unfold uh, the way it looks like they will. Um, and and I, I, I hesitate to say that because, you know, Cole's a young guy. Um, <laughs> he's probably like, hey, hey, you know, don't, don't uh, you know, write my finest hour yet. Uh, the game isn't even <laughs> out yet. But uh, it does look like a, a truly fascinating game. And, and so this is one of the reasons why, um, you know, I think, uh, Cole is, is going to be one of those designers to watch. And, uh, it's why this episode ended up kind of being a little bit of the Cole Worley show. Um, because, uh, you know, he, he grabbed my attention with Pax Pamir, uh, totally kind of blindsided me, slapped me across the face there with an infamous traffic. I had no idea where that came from. And, uh, John company now has just got me, uh, so interested, um, and, you know, because of all the things that we've mentioned. So thanks for sharing that little sneak peek and preview into that game. I'm sure that there's people out there who are listening to this particular episode, uh, because of their love of, uh, Pax Pamir that would be, uh, highly interested and motivated to uh, check that out. So, uh, thanks for giving us a little bit of that glimpse behind the curtain. Sure. So, um, you know, before we draw this to a close here, uh, I want to, of course, thank you for uh, your time and for reaching out. Uh, I believe uh, uh, you were one of the people, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, who had posted on the uh, sort of uh, geek list that we had put up, um, you know, kind of saying, hey, you know, is there a game that you would like to talk about? Um, You know, is there a game that uh, you would consider uh, popping on the show for? And so I appreciate you uh, uh, kind of reaching out and, and, uh, being willing to talk about Pax Pamir. Oh yeah, it's been my pleasure. Uh, like I say, I'm uh, <laughs> I'm a uh, a Cole Worley enthusiast. <laughs> um, both his uh, game design, you know, mechanically his aesthetic as well as his graphic design, I think um, is uh, something I've been a big fan of, and I've been enjoying these games tremendously. So it's it's really a pleasure to talk about them. Well, thank you very much. So, uh, you know, for uh, Matt my, and myself, uh, whether you want to call him uh, Minneapolis Matt or Meeple's Matt is okay with him. Uh, I want to say uh, thanks to everybody out there for listening. Thanks to uh, uh, those who are uh, putting up with my uh, uh, kind of semi-destroyed voice. Uh, thanks to uh, Matt for being so eloquent in his description of the games and uh, uh, all the information and insight that he's provided. If you are interested in uh, Pax Pamir or Kyber Knives, uh, please go and check out uh, gamesurplus.com. I know that they have stocked these games uh, in the past. Uh, They may even have them in stock right now. I haven't peaked yet today, Uh, but I know that's where I got my copies of uh, PAX Renaissance and uh, PAX Pamir and Kyber Knives and the PAX Renaissance expansion. Um, All of that stuff uh, I found at gamesurplus.com. So uh, if you are intrigued by these titles and want to check them out, I would encourage you to go there. And if you do decide to order, please tell them the long view sent you and so for matt and myself i want to say thanks to everybody out there for listening tonight and have a great night